Hey coaches, I hope you're getting a good start to 2024. It's hard to believe it's February already, but back in November, we asked you to submit your questions for the special Ask Dave Anything podcast. We got a wide range of questions from why is WTN the official rating of the ITA to how do I balance being a nice and caring coach, but also being strict and disciplined. We had rule scenarios submitted for our director of officiating, Anthony Montero, and we had questions about how to make college tennis better for everybody. Thank you to the coaches who submitted questions. And if you like this podcast, let us know so we can do more of this in the future. I hope you enjoy. Hey coaches, um, you might remember at the end of the fall, I asked for you to submit questions for our special podcast of Ask Dave Anything. So here we are, Dave's going to be touching upon some of your general tennis questions, along with some coaching questions that we'll have a little discussion about. And then at the end, we have some officiating questions with Anthony Montero. So to get it started, um, Dave, we have a question about UTR and WTN, our two favorite topics for this year. Um, this coach wants to know, why switch from UTR, which has been such a big supporter of college tennis, to WTN, which hasn't had the accuracy and is not ready to use in regards to all student athletes? Okay, where to start with this one, Lauren? Well, it's been been a year or, or so since uh, that decision was made and, and announced and that, that, that switch was completed. Um, I don't know when you received that that question. I know it was in the last several weeks, but I think this idea that WTN is not accurate has been debunked. There's even a, a study that was done by Duke University comparing WTN and UTR and, and the results or the conclusion of that study that both were interchangeable, very accurate, um, or accurate around the same, um, to the same degree. I, I don't know what that is, 79 to 83% in terms of predicting the outcome of a match. Uh, but there's really very little difference there uh, between the accuracy. I think if coaches are seen inaccuracies, usually it's because there's a duplicate account. You've got a player that goes by John Smith, uh, and you call him Johnny, and you put him in the roster as Johnny, and he's getting results into his John Smith account, and his Johnny Smith account is, is where all his college results are going, so he's not getting credit for those non-college matches. So coaches, if you see inaccuracies, you need to let us know. If you have a player who's missing a WTN, you need to let us know. But at this point, um, there might be certain groups that you might see, okay, this 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 group of players look a little higher or, or they should be lower. Um, I know the ITF plan to do an algorithm update every July. The one they did last July accounted for, I think, a lot of older men, I think 45 plus they recognized that some of those players were, were rated too highly and they made that adjustment. And then uh, whatever that 45 year old man logged on the next day and realized his WTN had dropped by uh, several points. And I'm sure he was very unhappy and all the rest of it, but th those, um, you know, that will evolve with time. It'll continue to get better. More results go into, uh, into it and more countries sign on. And I think that's, that's a huge reason why uh, the ITA, uh, especially our board of directors, uh, who make these decisions. And I should say, Lauren, you were on our board of directors. You know how uh, these decisions weigh heavily on our, our, our directors' minds. Um, these decisions are not made quickly by any means. It happens over a long period of time, a lot of discussion, a lot of debate. 
um, hearing all different sides of the argument and then trying to make the best decision for the ITA and college tennis. And I think our coaches um, should be proud of the decision that was made and recognize that they want their, they should want their coaches association to be closely aligned with the governing body of tennis in this country, which is the USDA and with the governing body uh, of, of the world of tennis, the ITF. Um, and that hasn't, been the case for many years and maybe at some point in the future that won't be the case it depends who what the leadership is at, at any particular moment in time and, and what their views are in college tennis and, and what the views of college tennis how we need uh, these other organizations but in my mind the more these organizations can work together i'm coming from a global perspective as well having worked in in ireland and, and been in touch with uh, what's going on with european tennis um we need these organizations such as the ITA, USDA, ITF to be working um, on the mission of growing the sport of, of tennis as a whole, not just college tennis. And uh, it should be recognized Universal Sports is, is a for-profit company. They could sell tomorrow. Um, they could go out of business. Uh, their job is to make money. Um, and absolutely nothing wrong with that. We, we just happen to be in the nonprofit world, but I've worked in the for-profit world uh, uh, through the years as well. So, um, but but our coaches should recognize that the ITF have invested millions of dollars, the USDA, they'll continue to do so. They really want a global currency. And the the one of the big differences between ITF or WTN and UTR is uh, the data protection. Um, you know, UTR was not able to get a lot of traction with many federations around the world because they were unable to share the type of data that UTR wanted just the the data protection laws, in, in especially in Europe, are a lot stricter than they are in the US, USA. And those laws are just going to get more strict in the USA as well. So um, I think uh, now we're seeing all these federations come on board with the WTN. Um, a, a player who plays college tennis now can go home at the Christmas break or the summer break. They'll have their WTN. They'll be able to get seated in events. They'll be able to play in events. They'll be able to uh, play in league teams. Um you know, I, I think it's it's just going to work more closely like the golf handicap does across the world, and which was the intention of the UTR. And yeah, UTR has been great for college tennis. College tennis has also been great for the UTR. And college tennis helped and our coaches helped prove uh, the concept that these ratings are, are very important and there is a use for them. So we hope UTR will stay very involved in college tennis um, uh, for many years to come. And And I think the more tools you have, uh, the better as a coach. You now have UTR, you now have WTN. Um, some you know, coaches will use one more than the other, but I'd advise coaches to continue to use both as, 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 they, as they need to, as it's helpful. There's competition in every area, right? I mean, you have to choose, am I going to McDonald's or Burger King? And you, know, you, you make that choice and it's, it's kind of the same like this. Uh, if you want to have a McDonald's and a Burger King the same day, go for it. Um, but I think with UTR and WTN, you can easily log into both and, and figure out where this player you're recruiting might fit in. So I think, um, yeah, coaches uh, hopefully will continue to keep an open mind. We've seen a huge amount of growth and interest from the coaches over the last year. And I, and I think uh, it'll just start working into their daily flow and, and how they've uh, traditionally done business. And I don't think it needs to slow them down one bit. All right. Thank you. Um, on to the next question. If Power Five schools go independent, 
how do you think that would affect Olympic or non-revenue sports like tennis at those institutions? Yeah, great question. We did have board meetings in, uh, in December, and this was uh, the type of conversations we were having. And everything is, is very speculative. So please, anything I, I say here, don't hold me to it. We've had conversations with conference commissioners, with athletic directors, um, you know, people who are, are really in the know of, of college athletics. And, and none of them can tell us what the future holds. They know change is coming. What that exactly looks like, they don't know. They've encouraged us to remain flexible, uh, be willing to make changes um, or be ready to make changes. Um, when when something is, is announced uh, official, whether that's the NCA uh, existing in some other way, whether it's the NCA going away altogether, I mean, there's a new lawsuit coming at the NCA literally on a weekly basis. And decisions are going to be made eventually. I don't know if in 2024 or 2025, but decisions are going to be made that impact college sports. And, and there's going to be no going back. These athletic directors, presidents, et cetera, are not going to want to uh, go against some federal law and find themselves in court yet again. Um, if the power... I guess four rather than power five now with the Pac-12 going away uh, were to break away and do their own thing. It will be interesting what the NCAA decide. Our NCAA now focusing on all those other schools, Division One, have their own basketball tournament. Um, that doesn't include those power four. And what is the interest in that? What is the media rights uh, that are involved with the tournament uh, where you don't have, you know, uh, a fairly Dickinson who, who made a run last year beating a UCLA, if you don't have the those type of matchups, does it capture the attention of the general public the way March Madness currently does? And if it doesn't, then what are those revenues? How do they trickle down to Division Two, II, Division Three? Um, you know, who's doing the eligibility um, for, for incoming student-athletes, uh, amateurism, everything that the NCA, who's running NCA championships, all, all these things are, are unknown. Um, I guess, you know, one of the things is where do Olympic sports fall when, if and when these power four uh, conferences break away, do they get together and say, we're no longer part of an NC the NCA, we don't have to sponsor 16 sports, um, let's all agree that we're going to sponsor eight sports, and we're going to have, I don't know, three men's sports and five or six women's sports, pick your number. Uh, where where do the Olympic sports fit in there? Um, and then if they get rid of all these sports, does that give a green light now to all those other Division One programs? Like, hey, well, they're cutting these sports. There's no need for us to now sponsor whatever, 20, 24, 28 sports. Let's us cut these sports as well. And so I think, again, there's just a lot of uncertainty, a lot of unknowns. Um we could sit here and say, well, maybe those those non-Power 4 tennis teams are safer. Uh, maybe the, the, these uh, athletic departments have come up with more sustainable ways of doing business where the very top of Division 1 are just spending more money than, than they're bringing in. And so if you're a mid-major coach, maybe you feel a little safer now than than a coach at a, at a power four institution, because if you're going to have to pay 
players, as employees, etc., that blows up the whole model. And then what is the future of international student athletes if they become employees because they can't work on an F1 student visa? Um, and then Title IX, that goes out the window as well. There's, there's just so much, Lauren. I, I mean, I could sit here and speculate all day. We, we don't know what's going to happen. Um, I, I, yeah, we, we just need to keep talking about it, discussing it making sure that coaches are keeping an open mind, recognizing, paying attention that, that change is coming, guys. Like, if you're resistant to change, I'm sorry. This isn't something that, uh, you know, courts, um, Congress, they are going to be making decisions about the future of college athletics. There's only so much influence the ITA or the USDA or any of these Olympic sports actually have. There's going to be decisions now made by politicians and judges that impact all our futures. So change is coming. Be ready for it. We're going to be vigilant. Uh, we're paying very close attention. We're continuing to have as many conversations with people in the know. We're working with other Olympic sports as to how we can gather momentum and, and have a collective voice um, for the betterment of all Olympic sports and moving forward. So, yeah, lots to come and um, making us making us all very nervous, but uh, uh, maybe you know, some massive change comes, it regroups and it makes college sports more sustainable uh, for many more decades because of this change we're about to go through. We're about to find out. And I, I mean, I think it also comes down to what probably most of us coach, you know, to our players is that, you know, you can really only just control what you can control. And so mm. I would probably recommend to all coaches to use the program health index that you created and to really take care of the things to, to keep their programs strong. And, you know, the other things that there's so many that they can't control. So at least do everything that you can do well, do it, do it very well. Um yeah, I think that's a great point, Lauren. I mean, again, we we can tie ourselves up in knots about what we uh, what we could or, or should be doing. We all need to prioritize and recognize what can we truly control here. And, um, you know, there's certain things the ITA control and, and can influence, but there's a lot that coaches in their own communities within their own athletic departments can also influence and control as well and, and have the right people in their corner and get the ear of, of those that will will make decisions on campuses, but also recognizing, like I said, there's going to be decisions that are even taken out of the hands of those leaders on those campuses. Because like I said, a politician or a judge has made a ruling um, on, on what the future is here. And, and so there's only so much the president and athletic department uh, can control or athletic director. So it doesn't mean we throw our hands up and we give up and, oh, well, this is all going to go to, to, to pot and, and why should we even try it? That, no, that's not the attitude we take. We, we double down, we work even harder and we, uh, we try and, and survive this turbulent time. And, and hopefully, like I said, come out of it the other side stronger. Okay. So Dave, now we're going to switch over to some very coaching specific questions um, from our coaches. So the first one is, what is your opinion on including professional tournaments, for example, um, 15,000s or, you know, whatever, onto the fall schedule, either for recruiting purposes or of the benefit to student athletes? 
Lauren, I'm not sure I'm fully understanding the question. I mean, usually when I look on the schedules of the tennis schedules for many of our programs, if they're taking players to 15Ks or 25Ks in the fall, they usually actually do list them on their schedule. <clears throat> so so they're there. And, and I guess maybe this coach is asking, are they allowed to do it? Yes. I mean, if these other other schools are doing it, absolutely you can. Um, I don't know if they're if the coaches may be asking about um, the ITA running professional uh, tournaments. That's not something we're interested in. Uh, we have run money tournaments in the past in the summer. Uh, I guess if there's money involved, we can say they're professional, but they don't count for ATP or or WTA points. Um, and it is something we'll, we'll probably do in the future as well. Um, and and tied in with our summer circuit, and there'll be more details. Uh, about our, our upgraded summer circuit that will be coming out in the next next few months for sure. So I'll have coaches keep an eye on that. But um, yeah, I think if coaches are interested in hosting professional tournaments, they definitely need to contact the USTA and um, the folks there. If they have, um, if they want contact details, just reach out to myself or yourself, Lauren, and and uh, ask us, um, you know, who the right people are to connect with. So. Not sure it's a great answer, but um, if the coach wants to follow up and, and uh, clarify, he, uh, he or she can do that. All right. Next question. What are some of the best fundraising ideas you've seen so far? And what are the most consistently successful ways to raise funds, um, particularly when you have a lot of international athletes on the team, which you know, I, I think most coaches have found historically don't have a, a big history of fundraising, probably in their countries, but just also, um, yeah, in their in their cultures. Yeah, de definitely. Um, there, there isn't that same culture internationally. That's uh, kind of the whole booster, um, <clears throat> you know, alumni giving is, is a very American thing, I think. Europe's trying to catch on a little bit, but there isn't that that culture. So it is tricky with international student athletes getting them to buy into to why they should uh, give back to to their university. Hopefully, they will at, at some point, even if it's it's uh, a small amount. But that's something that the coach needs to do to cultivate those relationships. I mean, you know, I, I don't think it matters if if you have Americans or international student athletes on your team in terms of getting them involved in the community. Um, doing fundraising type events at, at clubs. I think um, what I've found, at least during my time as a coach and even as a player at Fresno State, the, the local community, the alumni, the boosters, et cetera, really embrace those kids regardless of where they're from. And in some cases, they might be even more interested in the international kids. You know, I'm from Ireland. Every American thinks they're Irish. So you know, they gravitate to, to wanting to tell me about their ancestors and, you know, they're all excited. There's an Irish person on the team because their great, great, great grandmother, um, you know, was born in Ireland or whatever it is. So that, that's a silly example. But um, I think I think I've spoken to enough coaches at this point that they recognize it really doesn't matter. They're behind the team. They're behind the coach. They're behind the university. Um, they don't care where, where these kids are for the most part. You'll have the odd outlier that has some issue with it, but um, uh, I don't know. I haven't seen those as much recently. Maybe uh, because I'm I'm not coaching, I haven't seen it as much. But um, you know, in terms of, of fundraising ideas, yeah, I mean that's you know, on, if you listen to any of the podcast episode, I mean it's a question I ask often of our coaches. I think what comes up a lot is is communication 
um, you know, cultivating interest in your program, um, not thinking that that it's just going to happen. Hey, if I have a match at two o'clock on a Saturday, that people are going to come to it. Uh, people are busy. Uh, they're they're really busy. They've got a million distractions coming at them. You've got to give them a reason to to be interested and ultimately invest in your program. Uh, you've got to cultivate those relationships probably over a long period of time. Um, you've got to build build trust. You've got to build credibility. Um, you know, I, I think in terms of annual fundraising events, yes, yeah, some type of mixer at a local country club always seems to do well. Maybe some type of uh, auction items, uh, maybe a combination of, of things like that. Um, but we have a, a document in our coaches' resources in our master class. We have a number of ideas in there. Um, uh, I wish I could give more specifics, Lauren. Is there anything that that you found that worked very well for for you as your time as a coach? Um, you know, I think that my biggest takeaway from fundraising was because there was a point in time where we weren't doing a lot. And then we had made the decision, both um, Hendrik, the men's coach, and I decided we needed to really increase our fundraising in order to take the trips that we wanted to do to have, you know, the success that we thought it would help us have. And so the first thing was like, we we knew we had to do it as a men's and women's program. It couldn't just be the women's team, tennis team, going out to fundraise by themselves because we can't compete against each other. And we, it's the tennis community is too small. And I think no matter if you live in a big state or a big city or a small one like Honolulu, the tennis community is just kind of who it is. And so you you really have to do it together if you have two programs that was the first thing that that we found and the second thing was like how long it took to cultivate those fundraising relationships like you know it it took us we really dedicated about a year a year and a half to meeting people and networking and going to a ton of events events that were important to the people that we wanted to be important to um, and just showing that we supported their causes, um, not financially, of course, we're college tennis coaches, but like we supported them uh, with our presence and, you know, with in other ways mm-hmm. and that they would in, then return support us. And it really, you know, at first I felt very uncomfortable with it. I was thinking like, oh, this feels very like they know maybe they know why I'm I'm here and why I'm doing this. But first of all, we made great friends with these people. They're they're people that not only supported the programs, but they became people that we we really had great friendships with. Um, but they also then got their friends to support us, not not because of like, you know, what we were telling them about our teams. They loved what they heard, but I think it's because we let them into our lives also. You know, they started to get to know us as people. They started to get to know our, our players as people. And like you said, you know, they they created relationships with with all of us. And once you create that personal relationship, they they feel like they're part of the team. And I think for anyone looking to fundraise, it goes beyond, you know, just sending out a mailer or an email asking, you know, to donate with this link. Um, and then the third thing I would say is like just understanding who you're asking and what you want. You know, our alumni people had explained to me like you can ask a hundred people for ten dollars, or you can ask one person for a thousand dollars, and how you go about that is very different. So you have to decide what 
which fish are you trying to get? And it's not the same thing, you know, and, and how you attack those, those two different types of donors are, is, is important. Um, so yeah, those are some, some things I, I found to be helpful, but it's, it's hard work. You know, it's a lot, it's not, it's more than just sending something out. You do have to put in the time and to get the benefits in a year or two. Yeah, I think the other thing is being very clear on what your needs are. So, so if you do get in that conversation, or somebody says, "Hey, <clears throat> you know, how can I help?" That you're you you have uh, some sense of you know the different tiers. I mean, maybe you have a sense of of what they can give, but if not, you're saying, "Hey, well, we're really working towards uh, replacing the lights," or Uh, maybe you just need the nets replaced or uh, be be extremely helpful if if we could get five more cases of tennis balls you know you know just having you know some of the bigger ass the bigger vision things and then trickling down to to what seem might seem inconsequential but if somebody knows hey i'm going to give five hundred dollars and that's going to go to buy five cases of balls that uh, this team really needs well then i can feel good about that that five hundred dollars isn't just going into you know, some general fund and, and, you know, not really specific with, with where it's going. So I think having those specifics can be very helpful as well and should be on the tip of the tongue of any coach. Completely. Because I think like what a lot of coaches end up doing is like you make these relationships and you really like them as people. And then they say, how can I help? And when you don't have that list ready, you're like, oh, it's fine. You know, we're good. Like, don't worry about it. And <laughs> but really, you could have said five things that you actually do need financial help with. So if yeah. someone's asking you how they can help, it's because they genuinely want to help you. Right. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> okay. This next question is a little bit trickier. How do you find the balance between being a loving and caring coach, but also a stern and demanding coach? <laughs> uh, you, oh, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's a tough question. It is, it is a question, actually. I asked Andres Pedroso, uh, the men's Virginia coach, on the last podcast, um, because it is something I think every coach is challenged by. Uh, I know I was definitely... Uh, struggled with it i guess it's it's same as raising children as well two two teenage boys and and you're always trying to find that balance of of when to push and and when should i you know take my foot off the gas and, and leave this be let this one go um but uh, i think andreas gives a, a much uh, better answer than than i can possibly give and obviously is to uh, national championships to to his name to to back up what what he says but I think, you know, a lot of, of what he's saying, and I think most experienced coaches would say, it, it comes down to your understanding of the players. I mean, we're all different. I mean, that's where I was kind of pushing Andreas a little bit as to, you know, I think he talked about being a servant. That's like, well, if, if there's too much servitude, then the players will take advantage of that. And, uh, you know, but the more you can understand the players, what are their limits? How do they want to be motivated? You know, for me as a player, I really wanted to be yelled at. I wanted somebody to be just a complete asshole to me. And I didn't know that until I came to college. I had no idea like, wow, this is, this is, I actually respond really well to this. And initially I didn't, but over time I was like, yeah, just, just, just be really mean to me and I'll respond. And, and, that's not, I, I, I figured that that's 
that's not as common <laughs> these days. I think. Um, I think it's it's, but but there are players still that are going to respond well to that. And um, you know, where where are those limits? And and the more you can understand the players and and really ask them those questions, like how how do you want to be motivated? And and can you help me find that line as a coach? Can you tell me when I've when I've pushed too far and be able to analyze it critically, not not emotionally? Like, hey, you want to be motivated this way? Tell me why. Why do you think that is? And then tell me why I crossed the line. And did I really cross the line, or or do we need to talk about this a little bit more? And you'll recognize, like, oh, no, that's not the case. Um, you know, I don't know if that happens after every incident. Does it happen once a year, twice a year um, to get that feedback as a coach? Um, but I think Andres talked a lot about about structure as well, that these these kids, this generation just thrive on structure. They need structure. So you put in the, the structure, the basic foundations, and then you're you're tweaking things accordingly based on that relationship, your understanding of those players. Um, but that again, as we were talking about cultivating relationships with donors, it's the same thing with the student athletes. How much time are you willing to put in to really understand them, what motivates them, what their their goals are, and and truly get underneath the surface of that, not just surface level. Like, oh yeah, you know, I I, I want to win twenty matches. Well, why do you want to? What what is your plan? Why is that important to you? How do we think we go go about that? What are some things you're going to need to work on uh, now? What are you willing? What changes are you willing to make uh, over these next few months to to accomplish that, etc.? Um, I think it's 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 constantly asking questions and trying to get uh, under the surface of of these student athletes. Mm -hmm. No, what I about completely you? agree. Well, it was something that I struggled with my my whole career. Um, but, you know, I, I think like if I reflect on it, it was what made it easier was what you hit it like the nail on the head is understanding what your athletes needed, but also creating a relationship with them that allowed them to be open, to be very honest with you about what they needed. And then when things went bad, or it wasn't working, you had already established this relationship of trust and openness that you could talk to them in a way that didn't feel personal, you know, it, for either one of you, it's just like, hey, this is what is happening. How can we how can we change this? And then the other thing that I, I thought was really important is consistency. You know, it's like, if they know that every single time, you know, you're going to be loving and caring in these situations, um, and then they know if you're consistently not happy in other situations, I, I think that just gives them a good guideline of, of what your own boundaries are and limits. And consistency is important for, for everyone, right? Just to know what to expect. And so mm. I think that's that's really important. And it also establishes trust, you know, when they know that you're going to react in a certain way. Um, you become more more trustworthy to them. They more more mm. stable, and and they can really um, understand what they should and should not be doing. Whether they actually do it is a totally different story, but at least they know what the outcome is going to be. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a, a big mistake I made after having some time to reflect on my coaching career. Not you know probably being too hard on freshmen. You know, trying to establish that culture right out of the gates 
without ha having really built that trust, them not really understanding me that well, me not understanding them that well, thinking I did, but not really. And so now you're trying to hammer home this this whole new way of doing things and they're not ready for it. And, and yeah, it's, it definitely, it's, so it's, it's how do you reinforce um, what those requirements are of your program without going too far to where now you've lost that trust and credibility uh, with those players. And, and now you're mending the relationship instead of, you know, slowly building it. I guess it's patience. It didn't have enough patience. And, and I think a lot of coaches struggle with that, right? They want that player. They they signed this player. They're probably expecting that player to contribute in the spring. Maybe they just showed up in January. It's like, okay, I thought this player was going to come in and play three. And now he or she's like seven or eight. Like, this, this isn't okay. And then you lose patience and, and you're letting some of your frustration about them not being ready boil over into that relationship so i guess i'd encourage coaches to be a little bit more more patient than than i was at times and and maybe give the freshman a little longer rope than than you have in the past that's that's great advice um okay so moving on to since our spring season is is almost around the corner well it is around the corner this coach says um what makes an effective dual match coach that's a tricky question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, I think it comes comes back to the players. Like, I'll never forget, um, you know, <laughs> uh, early in my coaching career, you know, I was very, very tactical. And and hey, this is this is what I need you to do in this next game. This is exactly what I need you to do. Here's the weaknesses of the players. I want you to start picking on that. I want you to start playing more of these patterns, et cetera. And, you know, sometimes I'd hear the other coach and they'd be like, hey, you can do it. You got this. I'm like, oh, my God, really? That's your coaching? Like, are you kidding me? And then over time, and I, and I know one of my assistant coaches said this to me, like, hey, Dave, sometimes all your players need to hear is that they can do it. And, and that you believe in them. I'm like, really? Because <laughs> again, I mean, I'm being selfish here because I didn't need that as a player. I didn't need the coach to tell me. He believes in me. I believe myself. You don't need to tell me. I, I got this. Like, give me a break. Uh, so I want you to tell me, how do you help me win this match? Give me the tactics. Give me the data. You know, tell me what I'm, I need to be doing more of and less of. Don't, don't tell me you believe in me. But I took that into my coaching. And, and sometimes this is what players need to hear. So again, understanding your players, well, you know, understanding that relationship, how do they want to be coached during matches? What do they need? Do they need to be told they're the greatest thing on the planet and that you believe in them? Or do they need to know where to hit their first serve to the ad side on break point? You know, so um, that takes time. Um, it, it, you know, different Every match is, is a new, I don't know, canvas, right? I mean, you know, the player, one match, they're up 6-1, 5-1, and you're trying to help them close the match. And the next match, they're 5-0 in the third set. And how are they going to respond to that situation, their last match on? You know, different things could be needed. I guess the last thing I'd say that on that line as well is like, what is your personality? You know, it's, it's and, and how do you... Um, 
align more with, with who you are. I'm not the big rah-rah guy, you know, but I have to get myself out of my comfort zone a few times to be able to genuinely, authentically be saying, hey, I really believe in you. Like, I was unlikely to say that if I didn't believe in the player. But sometimes I have to say it. But but in turn, you know, sometimes you'll see coaches that I think it's too much about them. You know, they're 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 jumping up and down. They're, you know, biting their fingernails. They're yelling. They're screaming at officials. It's like, hey, coach, it's not about you. It's about these players. You're there to to help and assist. But if if you're walking around on edge and we're all on edge, but, but if you're telling your players to manage their emotions and, and you can't as a coach, then I think you got to check yourself and either stop telling your players to manage their emotions or, or you figure out how to put things in perspective, um, save your energy for when your players need them and uh, make sure that uh, you're conducting yourself in, in a way that will make your family proud, your university proud and, and the student athletes want to play for yeah, and I think like if I can just add on to that, is those were great points. But it's also um, something I found that I learned much later on in my career is that like sometimes you just can't help people during the match. Like you are not what they need, mm-hmm. um, and it took me a long time as a coach to just be okay with that. You know, it's like, well, I helped you last week and we did so good together. And, you know, like, but we do individuals every week together and it's okay. Like, you know, there's been a lot of times, like, especially the last three, four years of of my career where I would just tell my assistant coach, I'm really pissing her off right now. And I don't know, I have nothing to say to her. I can't help her at all. This is a disaster. Why don't you go on the court and I'm going to go somewhere else. And yeah, it's it's a, it's hard to get to that situation for some, well, it was for me, but I think it's important because um, sometimes you can be making things worse by trying to make things better. Um, mm-hmm. I love so. when opposing coaches made things worse. That was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, keep, keep pissing them off. Keep doing exactly. that. That's working. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. Um, and then really to finish out our questions, the last one is just about college tennis as a whole. So in what ways would you look to unify all the divisions of college tennis to create a better brand um, that all student athletes, fans, officials, uh, recruits could better understand? Um, and, in, you know, would you look into maybe having the same scoring system? Um, other sports don't use different scoring systems in different divisions. So, so what are your thought on a, thoughts on a unified college tennis um, sport? Well, Lauren, that, that's up to our coaches. I mean, this is, again, what our coaches don't always understand. These are the type of decisions our, our operating committees make. It's not a staff member. It's not Dave Mullins or Lauren Conscience saying, okay, tomorrow everybody's going to play this format. Uh, format has evolved. In recent years, when I was coaching, I was on the operating committee and was heavily involved with uh, with the the changes to the Division One format. Um, I think those changes have been positive uh, for for college tennis. Has it been a game changer? No, but I, I think it's made the the product uh, a little bit more fan friendly. I think it flows well. I think it's uh, demonstrated leadership from the ITA. I know the the um, the ATP with their next gen, they've experimented with some of the 
the rules that that we've implemented at college tennis for division one um and i think you know um different divisions have have differing reasons for the format they can play we hear from our our juco and, and division three coaches that they they don't play as many dates they you know um especially budgetarily it can be a challenge so when they they do travel somewhere. They want to get as much tennis as possible and, and feel like their student athletes got, got the fill of what they signed up for. Um, so philosophically, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit different. And, and I think we need to appreciate and respect um, the different philosophies of each division. Uh, they're not all the same. They're, we, we can't, uh, even within Division I, um, the top of Division I, <clears throat> um, you know, what... what uh, what they're working with compared to to some of the schools within division one it's it's night and day we could almost say there's three divisions within division one based on the resources that are out there so uh, we, we've got to be careful with this and i think we've got to I think there's no rush i think um you know um division three and and uh division three specifically this year at the national indoor division three championships are going to use the d1 d2 format um, they're going to experiment w- with it um, at some other events as well and, and some other dual matches um, and get more feedback on it. So I think they're moving in that direction. But um, I won't be twisting any arms saying, hey, you've got you've to change this. Um, I think people are familiar enough with tennis. I think, yeah, our scoring system as a whole, even the changes we made for for Division One, Division Two, and AIA, um, you know, they're – it's still complicated for the average fan. College tennis is not that easy to follow, unfortunately. Um, you know, should we move to, you know, the zero, one, two, three, four scoring for games again, just to make it, you know, love 15, 30. I mean, that's for somebody who's coming from a baseball background and, and wants to support their team and they come to it. That That's a challenge. Then you've got all these different facilities. You might have four matches on. And five and six still haven't gone on, and the match has been clinched, but these matches are still played. It, it's it's not ideal. I mean, unless we were to go to one court and a world team tennis format, which I personally have no interest in going to that format. Um, uh, I think we inherently have have some issues there with with our sport, with our product, um, and we've got to find creative ways to get over that. So, um, I guess if this coach is 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 uh, interested in, in unifying? I'd, I'd have you speak with your operating committee representative, share share uh, your thoughts on it, and um, why why you think we should move in that in that direction. But like I said, it's happening. It's happening slowly. Um, but um, yeah, maybe one day that we get there where we have four of the five divisions. Maybe we'll get there where we have all five divisions. So it'll take some time. So. Officiating has become a growing topic over the years. There aren't enough to go around and schools that can pay the officials more get the officials. This is not good for college tennis. Um, And officials have been turning down schools in their own cities to travel where they can make more money and work from the chair instead of having to deal with two courts. I don't blame them, but officiating should not be something that money can control. Is there any talk of the ITA taking over the assignment of officials and possibly a standard amount of payment for them? Um, thank you, Lauren, for the question. And thank you, uh, Dave and Lauren, for having me as a you know short guest for your podcast. Um, 
first and foremost. Second, uh, I'm going to answer shortly. No, the, there is absolutely no plans for the ITA to take over officiating. Um, and no, uh, there isn't even plans for the ITA to issue any kind of guidelines. Now, the longer answer, and forgive me for a second, I will put on my general counsel hat. Um, there are a lot of legal reasons why the ITA cannot directly assign officials, uh, not the least of which is um, we do not want to be the employer for all of these officials. Um, and the system that is in place is based on law related to officiating across all sports. Um, and it is uh, designed and mimics um, just about every sport in the collegiate uh atmosphere or environment um and it is designed remember for all 51 states and territories that we have officials in um so that includes states that are very pro-employer and states that are very pro-employee um we officials are independent contractors and as such they are directly employed by the assigner the tournament or the conference not by the ita the ita grants a certification and you need that certification to work ita matches but that is as far as you can go uh, it is the same system that's in place for the usta the atp the wta and the itf and like I said, and it's the same system that's in place for a lot of other sports, except for the top three revenue makers, football, basketball, uh, baseball, um, where it's just kind of a different scheme based on the revenue. Um, but so we have to be very careful because we cannot be uh, doing anything that would potentially put us in a position where somebody could say we are going beyond just granting a certification and we are now employing the officials. And so there has been case law in other sports um, because we've never done it in tennis because we've been following that case law we're even issuing guidelines even saying we recommend that you pay you know baseball officials 100 dollars a match i'm making that up uh has taken it to a level where courts have said you have now passed just a certifying organization and you are now an employing organization and so for um that reasons uh, we are not planning on moving forward I also want to point out, you know, that is an that would be an enormous undertaking to try and assign nationally, um, you know, every single division, um, you know, we would need seven or eight additional members of our staff. Uh, think about all the uh, number of officials that are employed as assigners throughout the country, not just in D1, but in D1, D2, D3, NAIA, and JUCO. I will tell you because we have just voluntary uh, surveys, there are over 220 assigners throughout the entire country and that and that number is really low it's probably closer to about three to four hundred um, so you're looking at taking all of that and trying to put it in one place uh, it would be um, extremely difficult and remember that you know the ita certainly doesn't have the resources of the usta and even the usta doesn't do it that way they don't have central assigning um, because of the law and the way the system is set up and then taking a step back um, you know, I understand that it can be frustrating. I live in Los Angeles, um, and uh, in Los Angeles, we are a very geographically small area with lots of officials. Our typical official does not travel more than 25 miles. Now, that may take them six hours, but, you know, it, they don't travel more than 25 to 30 miles. We don't have far distances. So we don't pay things like mileage and hotel. Um, last year, I, I assigned for USC, UCLA, and Pepperdine. Last year, we lost officials to schools on the East Coast where that of those, I mean, here we are in Los Angeles, 
and we're struggling because we're losing officials to schools in Boston, in North Carolina, in Florida, because they're getting airfare, hotel, and double the money. Um, and, you know, it's easy to say that economics shouldn't govern officiating. But, you know, I think one only needs to look back at collegiate sports in 2023 and see that economics is dominating in a whole lot of areas. And officiate, you can't exempt officiating from that. Um, you know, if you're a coach and you have two schools in your hometown and one is willing to pay your salary, double your salary, I mean, I'm not saying you are going to go there, but you're certainly going to consider that and you are going to factor that in along with a few other things. There are officials who work local matches and who don't travel, um, you know, and don't take the higher paycheck. But, you know, the, the fact of the matter is we can't ask officials or we can't exempt officials from the e economics of uh, our lives uh, any more than we can any other aspect of collegiate sports or the collegiate landscape. One other point, just on a good, on two good points. Uh, one, um, you know, we have reversed the trend. Uh, in the last year, we had a 10% increase in the number of officials. This is the first year ever um, the ITA has seen an increase in the number of officials. Um, for the last eight years before that, which is all we have records for, we've had a decline, sometimes very small, a half a percent or one percent, sometimes large, 10 percent. Um, but this is the first year. Uh, and so all credit to Dave and Tim and the work that they have put in um, establishing a very strong relationship with the USTA and all of us getting together and working on recruiting and retention. Um, but we have seen an increase. The numbers are going in the right direction. Uh, we now are right at 1,350, 1350. And we have a five-year plan that hopefully will get us to about, you know, 16, 1,700 in five years, um, which is our goal. I just add that, yeah, there is a recognition on, on behalf of the ITA leadership, our ITA board, um, that this has been, a, um, I guess, a disturbing trend to see every year losing officials. I know every sport is dealing with this. This isn't just tennis. I think there was a, a lot of attrition uh, during COVID. And I think we've seen an increase in uh, behavioral issues as well, parents, players, coaches, etc. And a lot of officials in every sport just saying it's not worth it. Uh, you know, I, I don't need to do this. Uh, they got into it uh, not to make money. They love the sport. And, and I think coaches need to recognize that as well. All these officials are doing the, the best that they can. But um, just a lot of our coaches don't know in 2015 when, when Tim took over uh, the ITA as CEO and president that the USTA actually uh, told Tim and the ITA, look, we're not certifying um, uh, college tennis officials anymore. Uh, and so you guys go figure it out. So Tim had to go away and figure that out from scratch himself and Erica Perkins and Corey Brooks and, and officials like Anthony, who at the time were helping on a, on a voluntary basis, um, come up with a plan to, to certify these officials. We hired somebody in a part-time role and, and have recognized that this deserves somebody with the stature, knowledge, wisdom of, of Anthony to come in and do it on a full-time basis. And we're already seeing the rewards of that. And hopefully uh, that will continue, that trend, positive trend will continue for the years to come. And the other element that Anthony and Corey are spending a lot of time on right now is, is in electronic line calling. We're not sure what the future is. Uh, we've been uh, doing a number of, of demos recently with some, some interesting uh, technology that will only continue to improve, get cheaper, be more accessible, uh, which can also help alleviate this issue in the future. Um, so we don't have a timeline on that. 
but it's definitely something we're putting time and attention and, and exploring and taking very seriously. And Lauren, if any coach uh, listening has an idea, uh, there are no bad ideas on recruitment and retention of officials or has a tournament that they're willing, especially in the fall, uh, we've had several coaches step forward across the divisions and across um, NAIA and JUCO and say, hey, I've got this tournament in the fall, I'm willing to help. Uh, where we've been able to train, you know, groups of like 25 officials, etc. So if anyone has an idea or an offer, please reach out to me, officials at itatennis.com. Uh, we are more than uh, willing to looking for active partners to help us with this problem. Hey, great. Thank you, guys. Um, so for our second question, this is a situational officiating question. And it has to do with positioning in a doubles match, specifically the returner's partner. So prior to most second serves for our team, the returner's partner of the opposing team would move themselves up by the net strap. They did not, not touch the service box. They only stood near it, but close enough that they were blocking the view to the tee. Just as we begin the service motion, the returner's partner would then backpedal towards the traditional returning position and the point would begin. In the rules, I know it says that a player may change positions at any time, including while the server is tossing the ball, but it also says any movement or sound that is made solely to distract an opponent is not allowed. And so I know that intent matters. We asked the opposing coach the purpose of the move and they replied that it was to get their feet moving. Without an official ruling, bringing this up with the opposing coach and no official present, I come to you wondering if this is a violation or if it's a legal move. What are your thoughts, Anthony? Um, well, it's a great question that summarizes the two parts of, of the rule that are in play here accurately. On the one hand, you cannot do anything as the receiver's partner that is designed solely to distract the other team. The key word there is solely. So you can certainly do something that is distracting, but if it serves another purpose, then it is not designed solely to distract and therefore doesn't violate the rule. And in the same time, the counterpart to that, as the question recognizes, is the rule does say that the receiver's partner can feign, move, you know, it is not, they're not required to stand still during the service motion. They're just not, they're not allowed to do anything that is designed solely to distract the server. Um, so uh, I'm reminded, I, I seem to be in lawyer mode, but I'm reminded um, every uh, person who took constitutional law in law school studies a famous Supreme Court case um, from the 60s in which they were looking at uh, whether something was art or pornography. And the Supreme Court justice, uh, whose name eludes me right now, but said, uh, I know pornography when I see it, but I can't give you a definition of it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a famous quote that everyone always laughs at. Um, but it's true. Uh, I, it's very hard to come up with, a, you know, a textbook definition of what is designed solely to distract, but I know it when I see it. Um, I certainly have some concerns based on the question. It does appear, based on the question, uh, that the actions of that receiver's partner are designed solely to distract the server. But I really need to see it. This is just one of those ones that you're going to need to see as an official. So my biggest takeaway from that is my best advice would be that you really, much like we passed a new rule this year that recommends having an official at all matches, 
um, is that I would get an official to your match when you're playing that school um, so that they can look at it and they can make that decision. Um, and it might be something that that official might have to watch for a couple points before they are 100% convinced. Um, obviously, uh, if I, I have no doubt that if the coach from the other team submitted the question, it would be submitted in a manner that I might think that, oh, it's clearly not designed solely to distract. Um, so, you know, it is just one of those things that you're going to have to see at, but, uh, and make your best judgment based on what the official is seeing. Okay, and, and I have a follow-up question to that, Anthony. What can you say about, um, you know, when a player does something consistently? So I think a lot of coaches believe like, okay, if they do that, if the player does it every single time on every point, then it's part of their routine. It's part of their, you know, how they move. Um, what As an official, what would you say to that? Um, you know, it's certainly plays in the player's favor, right? If a player has from the very first start of, of the offender's favor, if a, for example, uh, I have chaired a match where from the very first start of the point, the player's shoes have squeaked, you know, by the way, what they're doing. And now in the third set, a coach comes running over and wants me to get involved because the shoes are squeaking and that's a hindrance. And there I'm going to say, coach, I have been here for two and a half hours chairing this match. No one has complained, and those shoes have been squeaking the whole time. And that's a very different scenario than they've been playing quietly, right, for two and a half hours. And all of a sudden, in the final set tiebreak, his shoes are squeaking and because he's, you know, moving his feet in a certain manner. And there, you're going to tell the player, you know what, you've played for two and a half hours and never made that noise. You know, you need to stop. So it does factor in. Um, but tied to that uh, is, you know, that's really easy because notice in my example it was a chair umpire that becomes a lot more complicated when you're a rover because when you're a rover you don't you know you're moving from court to court to court you don't know whether or not the action is something that the player has done consistently or it's a new action um so you're going to have a different take as a rover because you don't have any history of having watched that match for two and a half hours so um it certainly can factor in but far more so when you're in the chair than when you're roving Okay, thank you. All right, well, that's all the questions we have from, from our coaches. So thank you for, okay. for answering all of them. Well, thank you coaches for, for, for uh, putting in some questions to us. We really appreciate it. Um, you don't have to wait till an a AMA podcast to uh, send in these questions if, if you ever have um, um, need help or, or, or have questions such as these that you need answers to. Just let us know. We're here to help you guys uh, to the best of our ability. So either uh, email us or, or give us a call and we'll be more than happy to, to help and fill you in on, on uh, why some decisions are made, who are making decisions um, and, and any speculation uh, about the future. And I guess if they have coaching questions, Lauren, we'll, we'll do our best to help. But we have, um, you know, we have our own experiences as, as coaches, but we also have, you know, our mentorship program. We have our coach up program. Uh, we have lots of coaches out there that I know, you know, experienced coaches that are more than willing to help uh, our younger coaches. So don't be afraid to reach out to them or ask them questions when you see them at a tournament or recruiting or at a dual match. Um, I know they'd be more than willing to, to help you guys. So, um, yeah, let's keep working together for the, the betterment of college tennis. Sounds great, Dave. Thank you. Thanks, Lauren. <laughs>